So we are continuing our journey in uh, Genesis chapter 28 today, parts of chapter 28. So last week we talked about the issue of the um, Jacob and his mom and Esau and Isaac and and we talked a lot about struggle and and struggle is the name of the game here. Uh, and but struggling with God, uh, no matter even if it's we're we're getting it just right or not. And when we, we last week we talked about uh, uh, you know Jacob and Esau and the issue of of a Jacob dressing up like Esau and and uh, getting the birthright and and uh, and so on and. Certainly, uh, Jacob uh, paid a price for that, even though he was sort of like caught between a rock and a hard place, you know, uh, uh, and that being um, between his mother uh, telling him, uh, you know, uh, uh, what to do, and, and then, uh, you know, his, uh, his father and having to pretend he's Esau, it was a no-win situation for him, Right? And what is amazing about it is, you know, he pays a price. Remember we said that. I want to make sure that we're not sugarcoating. We're not going over the edge with Jacob here. He did wrong. He paid a price, and his mother paid a terrific price. Uh, and he paid a price. But what is amazing, as we'll see today, that there is no place that he's chastised for it. The opposite is what happened. The opposite. It's not like neutral. He receives blessing upon blessing as a result of this. So it's hard to argue with the Bible, you know what I mean? You just sort of have to let it sit there, and that's how it is, uh, rather than doing what so many do uh, and sort of reading it superficially, you, you know, and, uh, and just castigating Jacob. It's hard to read a commentary on this because Jacob is like the whipping boy uh, all the way through here. Uh, and, uh, and I will just say it is so contrary to what the Bible says. So, be that as it may, okay? So here's what we see. We want to actually begin at the end of chapter 27. The end of chapter 27. So at the end of the story, uh, Jacob receives the birthright. Esau does receive uh, somewhat of a blessing from his father. But uh, we read in verse 41 of uh, chapter 27. So Esau bore a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. Now I, I will contend, now people disagree on this, but I will strongly suggest that the birthright blessing is different from the Abraham blessing. That it's not the same thing. Okay? That what Esau wanted was the typical blessing that the firstborn receives. Okay? And uh, Jacob uh, received it because we read earlier, remember, you have to look at this as a one big story, that Esau could have cared less about it. He despised the birthright. The text tells us Esau despised the birthright. He could have cared less. Remember, there was a famine. Maybe he figured it was a lost cause. You know, who cares about any of this land? Maybe that's what he was thinking. Uh, we don't know, uh, but, he, but he did not uh, uh, care. Uh, I would suggest that what Esau cares about is that Jacob's getting something that is rightfully his, and that just gets to him, even though he could have, he could have cared less. He despised his birthright. Okay? All right, so when all is said and done there at this point, 
So Esau, uh, is, uh, Esau says to himself, The days of mourning for my father are near, then I will kill my brother Jacob. Now in the words of her elder son, now verse 42 of chapter 27, Now when the words of her elder son Esau were reported to Rebekah, she sent and called her younger son Jacob and said to him, Behold, your brother Esau is consoling himself concerning you by planning to kill you. Thanks, Mom. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice. Here she says it again, right? She said this earlier. Obey my voice and arise, flee to Haran to my brother Laban, and stay with him a few days until your brother's fury subsides, until your brother's anger against you subsides, and he forgets what you did to him. Then I shall send and get you from there. Why should I be, re be, re be bereaved of both in one day? Notice she does, this is just an interesting observation of the text. She doesn't tell him to find a wife. She does not tell him to go to uh, uh, Haran, to Laban, to find a wife. She says, go to Haran and hide out and then I'll send for you. Okay, that's what she says. Okay. And Rebekah said to Isaac, I am tired of living because of the daughters of Heth. If Jacob takes a wife from the daughters of Heth, like these from the daughters of the land, what good will my life be to me? Okay. So now this is interesting. Now here is another question about her motives and, and about Rebekah. So it's one of two things. Either... Uh, she is not thinking really about uh, a wife for Jacob, and she just wants to save his life. And then she comes up with a, a reason to say to her husband, you know, uh, that, that Isaac, that would appeal to Isaac, you know, uh, to send him to, uh, you know, Padan Aram so that he can find a wife. And so maybe either it was a ruse, or she really did want Jacob to find a wife, but it had to come from, but she tells her husband to tell him that. See? So I don't think Rebecca is as bad as she's made out to be either. Uh, that she tells Jacob, you go, you go away so that your brother doesn't kill you. And then she says to her husband, tell him to find a wife, uh, you know, from uh, my brother uh, Laban's family. Okay. Whichever way, what you see here is kind of like real life. <laughs> you know, just kind of like real life where sometimes uh, it falls into that gray area. But one of the things that we learn uh, in these texts is the providential hand of God is at work amidst uh, a frail human beings who have all kinds of motives for doing what they do. Uh, and with Isaac and Rebekah, uh, you know, uh, their motives were not evil. None of them had evil motives, Right? preservation, loving the sons, and so on. Uh, and people make right choices and sometimes unfortunate uh, uh, choices in doing that. But isn't it marvelous that God was not exactly relying on uh, Jacob and Esau uh, and Isaac and Rebekah just to do the right thing, that his providential hand was over the whole thing. So that should really encourage us. Because maybe in our family, there's all kinds of choices being made, right? And we're trying to figure out what's going on, right? And, and so, you know, sometimes all we can do is lean on the providential hand of God. And I don't know why it's working out this way, 
right? And we just lean on God. It, you know, one of my favorite passages about leaning on God, uh, well, there's two, really. Uh, one is in Jeremiah chapter 17, and you know that passage, right? Blessed is the one who believes in the Lord, uh, who, who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord, right? And, uh, and what, what Jeremiah does is he takes Psalm 1 and, uh, and ties that together right there being a tree by the waters and all that, right? But, but notice it says, who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord, right? So whose trust is the Lord means you're, like, you're just leaning on him, just relying on him, right? And then there is the, uh, the great passage in uh, Isaiah chapter 28, or is it Isaiah 26? Let's see. I think it's 26. Uh, Isaiah 26... Yeah, in verse 3 where it says, The steadfast of mind that will keep in perfect peace because he trusts in me. Literally, it doesn't say steadfast of mind. It's really leaning. It's like, it means like lean. And like lean against the wall that, you know, that, so you don't fall down kind of thing. You know? and, and that's the one who's in perfect peace because he trusts in, in, in God. The one who leans on the Lord. So steadfast of mind. The one who is uh, trusting a thinking about the things of God. You know, yes. But literally, it means the one who leans on that one. He, he will keep in perfect peace. And so that's just a little aside to this a portion where you have a mother and a father and two brothers, that a very imperfect family uh, whom God uh, blesses. And think about it. Every person, all of the major characters in the book of Genesis, almost blow the whole thing. All the major characters almost mess up the entire plan of God, the, the covenant, right? But God isn't going to let that happen. God is, you know, this is just a very, I mean, it's a weird way of saying it. God is smart enough to know that he can't trust us to, to make sure that it's going to come to pass, okay? And so he makes sure himself. And the greatest demonstration of that is What? The coming of a Messiah. There was no king of Israel that could do it. There was no prophet who could do it. He came himself uh, and made sure that uh, our sins were atoned for uh, and uh, that our iniquities are taken away, right? And he places his Torah in us, right? Uh, We can't rely on just learning it. He says, I am placing it in you, in Yeshua, in Yeshua, we realize the Torah, not just read it, but there's a realization in our lives of it, see? And that's how much God loves us. So as we continue here, we see now this demonstrated in Jacob himself, in Jacob's life himself. Oh, that Jacob, okay? All right, so I, now in chapter 28, so Isaac called Jacob and blessed him. See, it's immediate, immediate. He blessed him. And this is after the whole Jacob and Esau affair, after, after Isaac knows what has happened, okay? So, so Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and charged him and said to him, you shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. Arise, go to Padan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and from, the, and from there take to yourself a wife from the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. And may God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply 
so that you may become a company of people, a kihilat of people, it's a, like an assembly of peoples. Interesting. May he also give you the blessing of Abraham. See, here it is. This is not the previous blessing. May he also give you the blessing of Abraham to you and to your descendants with you, that you may possess the land of your sojournings, which God gave to Abraham. Okay. I, now, a couple of interesting things in the text. Notice he uses the word God Almighty, El Shaddai, right? Well, if you took the uh, class on the names of God, you learned that uh, Almighty is not really a very good English translation, right? And it really uh, should just be left El Shaddai. It really should just be left El Shaddai. El Almighty is not, is actually uh, uh, Shad. This is what, uh, what, uh, what I think Dr. Meyer said this, but I think it's by observation. When you read El Shaddai, when you read Shaddai in Genesis, it's always, I think, I'll just have to say almost because someone will find an exception. Almost always related to being fruitful and multiplying. Okay? And Shad in Hebrew is breast. Okay? And so it, the name, this name of God lends itself to childbearing and being fruitful and multiplying. See? So it's very interesting. When you read the, the name Shaddai here, I'm sorry, Amy Grant, but you know, uh, the, uh, uh, it's used to um, uh, give God the name of the one who makes one fruitful and multiply. And so it's very, uh, very interesting. So he's called Shaddai here. Okay. Oh, those English translations. Okay. Uh, and may God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply. Right. This is the blessing of, of Abraham, the people, the land, and, and so on, right? Very, very important. Okay. So we see here, I, uh, so I, then Isaac sent Jacob away, and he went to Badan Aram, uh, to Laban, son of Bethuel, the, the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, the mother of Jacob and Esau. Now Esau saw that Jacob had blessed, that Esau, that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Badan Aram to take to himself a wife from there. And that when he blessed him, he charged him, saying, You shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. And that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and had gone to Badan Aram. So this is very interesting. So Esau saw that the daughters of Canaan displeased his father Isaac. He was already married to a couple of them. Okay? So Esau went to Ishmael. So, but Esau... This is so, it's kind of sad. So what Esau does is he, he tries to take another wife, another wife who's not from the daughters of Canaan, from Ishmael, from, uh, from Abraham's other son, from Isaac's, uh, from Isaac's uh, brother, right? So he goes to Ishmael and he marries, besides the wives that he had, Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, sister of, of Nebaioth. Now, when you read about uh, this person that he has married, you see that we're, we're dealing uh, now with uh, this relationship of Ishmaelites and Edomites. And the Ishmaelites and the Edomites were bad news as the history of uh, the Jewish people unfolds. And, uh, and it just goes to show you uh, that, um, boy, you know, when you, when you think about this, you have two sons, and you have two sons and who they're going to marry. 
That's one way of looking at this, at this passage. It's about two brothers and who they're going to marry. What, so what is uh, Jacob told? Don't marry Canaanites. Don't marry people out of the covenant. Wait. Go on a journey. You'll find the right person, <laughs> so to speak. Right? This would be a great lesson uh, for our teens, right? Uh, and others as well uh, who might be thinking, uh, who am I going to marry? Right? So Ishmael, he, uh, so uh, Esau, he's already made uh, you know, a grave error by marrying Canaanite women and displacing his father, father and mother. But now he thinks, maybe I can do better, so he marries an Ishmaelite. I find what, what's interesting about uh, Esau is it did not dawn on him to also go to Padan Aram uh, and, and to also go on that journey and to also find a wife uh, from uh, Laban's family because that's what would please his parents. So he wasn't that concerned with pleasing them, right? Uh, but he tries to uh, do something, so he goes to Ishmael. So it is very interesting, the direction of Esau and the direction of Isaac, uh, of Esau and the direction of Jacob. Okay, so, so I, I, uh, Esau, you could say, sees what's in front of him and he finds basically pagan wives of different kinds. Jacob, on the other hand, listens to his mother and he listens to his father. And he's going, this, the, this young man who is a sort of a homebody, who's not a hunter, not the outdoors guy, sort of sticks close to his mom, he now loses it all. He loses his mother, and he has to go out into the wilderness. He has to go on this journey, and we'll see over the next number of chapters the things that happen to him on this uh, journey. But at the end of the day, he does return with the woman he loves. So, anyway. Very interesting. Because he was obedient to God. All right. Uh, okay. Uh, now, so now verse 10. Then Jacob departed from Beersheba and went toward Haran. Haran is way north, right? You know, they, as you can see on the map, they came from Ur of the Chaldeans and they went up to Haran. And that's where the family settled. And then, they, then Abraham came down, right? So now... Uh, Jacob is going from Beersheba back up to Haran. You know, what's interesting about Hebrew, Hebrew, Hebrew language doesn't usually give us de the details. You know, like, and then he started on the journey and it was hot and it was this and it was that. And the, the, it's just, you know, he goes on a journey and there he is, right? But we do read here uh, about an amazing thing happened on the way to Haran, all right? So he came to a certain place. And what's fascinating about that is certain place, the Hebrew word for that actually means something to the effect of an, any, any old place, like a random place. And that's important here, that he didn't go to a holy site. This is very important in the, in the ancient world, because in the ancient world, the idea was that you would go to a holy, a holy site. That's where the God was, and then, and then he'd speak to you. But, but uh, he comes to this any old place called Luz, and this is where God is going to meet him. God meets him where he's at, is the point, okay? So he came to a certain place and spent the night there because the sun had set. And he took one of the stones of the place and put it under his head and lay down uh, in that place. Uh, and he had a dream. 
And behold, a ladder was set on the earth uh, with its top reaching to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it, which uh, is another... Uh, it, when it says the Lord stood above it, it does, does not mean that like God was on top of the ladder. God was there. In Hebrew, it could be above, next to. Uh, it, it doesn't mean necessarily on top of the ladder. Okay, but God was with him. But evidently in the dream, we could say God was above the ladder. Okay. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, the God of Isaac. Now, he uses yud heh vav here. So it's not El, as not to be confused with the general name of deity, which is El. Okay? Very important. You could say what, uh, you know, what um, in English... Let me make sure I say this. What God is to Yeshua, El is to yud heh vav You know what I'm saying? Like if you go out in the street and you say, do you believe in God? Oh, yeah, I believe in God. That could mean a billion different things. It could mean so many things, it means nothing, right? Unless it's qualified. So that's why El, when, when God is called El, there's always a qualifier. Like El Shaddai, right? But El is just the, the name of deity, Okay. So, but here it's Yudhe Vavhe, the, 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 the specific identity of the God of Israel. All right? I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, the God of Isaac, uh, and the land on which you lie, I will give it to you and to your descendants. Now, you know what's fascinating about this? This is the first time we read that God speaks directly to Jacob. He has not spoken directly to Jacob until now. Uh, and your descendants shall uh, be like, uh, also be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your descendants shall all the families of the earth be blessed. That's every direction, by the way, from where he is. Not just north, or not just south, or not just east, or not just west, but all four directions. Okay. And behold, and, and note, and in you and in your descendants shall all the families of the earth be blessed. This is the, uh, the specific blessing of, uh, given to Abraham and Isaac and now to Jacob, that it's not just about you and your family, but it, there are worldwide ramifications to this uh, a covenant that I'm making with you. Okay, so clearly... Uh, Jacob is receiving the promise of Abraham. All right. And behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. So God makes this promise to him. This is not a maybe promise. This is a promise, an ironclad promise that God makes to Jacob. Nowhere in here do we read... Uh, about, um, but I do have to speak to you, Jacob, about what happened with uh, your mother and your father in the last chapter, <laughs> right? He never brings that up. It's all about God blessing him. It's, that's what's happening here in this text. God makes this unbelievable promise to him. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. 
See, now, see that, that's fabulous here. Because this is a random place. And he sees that God is in this place, yet I did not know it. Right? That could be a half an hour of great preaching right there. Right? Right. No matter where we may be, no matter where we may be, God is in this place. Jacob knew the Lord. Jacob knew the Lord. It's not like he came to know the Lord when he wrestles with the angel or something like that. That's not, that's not what the Bible says. What maybe we might like to think or something. But he knew the Lord and he struggled and he, he had a rough go of it and mistakes were made along the way. But God is so faithful. He makes this promise to him, right? And Jacob realizes when he wakes up, wow, God is in this place and I didn't even realize it. That is how much God loves Jacob. And that, again, may be true in our own lives, in our own situation, whatever it may be. Wow, God is in this place and I did not know it. See? And he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? So if he was afraid. He, was, he, he recognized the, the awe of God, the, the grandeur of God. It's, it just shows us his heart, right? Okay. So he says uh, here, and it says he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. I think I'll name it that, right? Beth-El. That's what Beth-El means, okay? And this is the gate of heaven, okay? Sha'arei HaShemayim. It's the name of a messianic congregation in Indianapolis, okay? So Jacob rose early in the morning and took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on its top and called the name of that place Bethel. However, previously, just so we know, right? Previously, the name of the place had been Luz. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me on this journey that I take and will give me food to eat and garments to wear, and I return to my father's house in safety, then the Lord will be my God. And this stone, which I have set up as a pillar, will be God's house. And of all thou dost give me, I will surely give a tenth to thee. Okay, here's another thing this is not. This is not a bargain that Jacob is making with God. This is not a, if you will do this, I will do that. No. In fact, this could be written that ifs go all the way to the very end of it. So in other words, what Jacob is saying, Lord, according to your promise, as your promise comes to pass, I'm faithful to you. Much like what Hannah, how Hannah prays in chapter 1 of 1 Samuel, right? Lord, give me a child and I'll give him to you. We never hear that, uh, uh, oh, that Hannah, how could she say something like that? That if you give me a child, I'll, I'll, I'll give him to you. What, what's she kind of do, bargaining with God? No. Well, no, we say, Hannah, this great woman of faith, right? And so, don't we pray that way? Oh, Lord. You know, we, we share with God the desire of our heart that it's like ripping our heart out. We're giving him our heart's desire, Right? Uh, that's not faithlessness. That's not making a bargain with God. That's trusting God. That's running to God. That's struggling with God. And that's what Jacob does his whole life. And we see it in all of these places. So he has the dream. Let's come back to the dream. In the dream, 
there is a ladder. Now, of course, they didn't have like ladders in those days, you know, like regular ladder, ladders. It was like a ramp. That's what he really sees. It's something like a ramp, even in Hebrew. Okay, something like a ramp. All right, uh, with its top reaching to heaven, and that reminds us perhaps of the the Tower of Babel. You know, perhaps uh, or uh, uh, just this concept of. Uh, a way, a, a way to the heavenlies, a way to the heavenlies. Okay, and we see angels of God going up and down on it. Up and down is ramp. Okay, and that can mean a variety of things. It doesn't tell us. The text doesn't tell us. Uh, it could mean that uh, you know something comforting to Jacob that uh, there are angels traveling with him. Could could very well be because he's in a scary place. He's leaving his everything behind and going on this journey to a place he does not know. Okay? And so you have the, the, the concept of, you know, angels coming from God to, to Jacob and he's, he's not alone and, and, and so on. And, and uh, certainly, uh, you know, God has ministering angels all over the place uh, that are invisible and we don't understand, but we trust God that, that they're there. We read about uh, angels. Right? Sometimes we, we like to get real mystical about angels and in varieties of ways, and if that's your fancy, that's fine. But I, I would just say, you know, we can rest assured that we're not alone. Uh, whether it's ministering angels, Yeshua himself, we're not alone. That's the bottom line, you know? And Jacob was not alone. Jacob was not alone. All right. Uh, it also could simply be a demonstration of you, you see that there's this connection that uh, where God is and where Jacob is, and that even though uh, God is not in the flesh with Jacob, uh, that Jacob is not alone. That even though, uh, you know, God is the invisible God in the heavenlies, uh, but I'm not alone. So uh, then uh, we see, uh, again, God making this promise about that. You know, I am the Lord God, and God makes this covenant with him, uh, this ironclad covenant and this promise that he would never be, uh, never be alone. And so then Jacob wakes up and he realizes something has happened. As we said, that God is in this place. Wow. You know? Uh, and then it's like a declaration that he makes. This is not a bargaining with God, but it's like a declaration. You know, Lord, you will be with me. You will, you know, you will be with me. You will travel with me. You will be my God. You are my God. And if, by the way, with a you will be my God thing, God says that to Israel. He is their God. But read in the prophets. He says, and I will be your God and you shall be my people. But they already are. It's a way of communicating promise. Okay? It's a way of communicating promise. No need to pick it apart. You know, uh, you know what I'm saying. Okay? It's a way of communicating promise. All right. And, and so uh, Jacob is like declaring that he's going and God is going to be with him and God has made him this, this promise. And we'll see that he, as he goes now, he's basically living on that promise. We'll see it uh, intertwined, you know, uh, in, the, uh, in the text. Okay. Now, what's interesting, uh, of course, here uh, is that Yeshua uh, takes this text and uses it in a very profound moment, right? Uh, it's in the uh, first chapter of the Gospel of John. 
And it's easy to find because it's the last verse of chapter 1. So it's, at the, it's in that last section, it was the last verse, but it's in that, the end of this section where Yeshua is calling out his disciples. Okay? Where Yeshua is calling out his disciples. I like to think of it as, it's sort of like the, the uh, unheralded part of the first chapter of the Gospel of John. You know, it's not the first five verses, or first 14 verses, I should say. You know what I mean? Okay. So uh, in verse 49, it says, uh, Nathanael answered, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. Yeshua answered and said to him, Because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You shall see greater things than these. And here you go, verse 51. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you shall see the heavens open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. So this is very important. The first thing is, is quite clearly, uh, Yeshua is pointing attention to this text in Genesis uh, uh, chapter 28. The angels ascending and descending on Yeshua. So he's saying he is, he is the way. He is the one. He is the mediator between God and man. There's no other name under heaven that he is, so to speak, the way to God. Okay? But there's more than that. In this section, a great way, if you ever, uh, if you ever need a Bible study to do, to teach, is to go back to uh, like verse 35 uh, and read through 51 and see all the names that are given to Yeshua by all the different people. Okay? So he's called the Lamb of God. John says in verse 30, Behold, the Lamb of God. Right? Uh, and then uh, you read a little farther down in verse 41, about Peter. He found him, he, he found first his own brother Simon, or the, uh, Andrew, I mean. Okay? And uh, uh, he finds Peter, right? Simon. He found first his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah. Right? Thank you for the translation. Right? Right there. Uh, see, here's the, here is the messianic uh, conundrum in reading this. Do we say, which translated means Messiah? This is probably the only place in the entire uh, reading of the, of the uh, New Covenant Scriptures where we have to say Christ. <laughs> Didn't you ever think of that? Okay, anyway. Does anybody even know what I'm talking about? Okay. <laughs> okay. All right, anyway. <laughs> okay, because I'm kind of out of my mind. Okay. He brought him to Yeshua. Uh, Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas. Okay. You read farther down, Philip, in verse 45. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Yeshua of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Okay. Then he finds Nathanael. Right? Nathanael answers, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Okay. So what do they all have in common? What they all have in common is that Yeshua never calls himself in this text any of those names. They're all true, and they're all right, and they're all fan. That's a great study of these. This is who Yeshua is. This is who the Messiah is, and you can make a list. But the only one that he refers to himself as is the Son of Man in this text. He says the Son of Man, okay? Why is that so important? 
That is important because he is not simply saying here, I'm a human being. That's not what he's referring to. He's going back to, at that time, in the first century, century, a very hotly debated and well-known passage of the Tanakh that we read about in Daniel chapter 7. I know we're all over the place. It's all right. In Dan- the book of Daniel in the seventh chapter. You're familiar with it, I'm sure. We don't, we're not going to go over the entire vision here. But you have two individuals. One is called the Ancient of Days, and one is the one like a son of man coming in the clouds. Now, Jewish scholars, ancient scholars, all agree that the Ancient of Days is like God on the throne, right? But the question is, who is this other one? You know, uh, who is uh, this one uh, like, a, uh, like a son of man, right? So if you turn here uh, to uh, uh, chapter 7, okay, it, says, uh, it says here, and beginning in verse 9, he talks about, it says, I kept looking until thrones were set up and, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow and his hair was in his head like pure wool. Oh, interesting. His throne was ablaze with flames and his wheels were... Uh, a burning fire, a river uh, was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him, and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat and the books were open. Okay, this glorious vision of God. But then you read a little farther down, and it says, I kept looking in verse 13. I kept looking. There's something else. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the sun of, uh, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the people, nations, and from every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one uh, which will not be destroyed. So who is this one like a son of man? Is he a demigod? Is it like a junior god? Is it another god? Is he an angel? What is when Yeshua comes, he is clarifying this passage. And he is saying, I am the son of man. It's, that's me. This is very important because it, this is his self-understanding. That means he understood who he was. He knew that he was identified with the God of Israel. He knew that he was the messianic uh, 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 king. And very important in this text, he sees himself as the son of man who comes and is the bridge between heaven and earth. The bridge between God and, and man. And, uh, and this is how he identifies himself. So he takes this passage where uh, Jacob is comforted and knows that no matter what, God is going to be with him, right? But it's not just ministering angels. Now, now we have Yeshua, we have the Son of Man, we have the Son of Man coming in the clouds, and he is, of course, he has not manifested himself yet in, in, in that way, but it is who he is. He is the suffering servant, and he came, and we know the story. He died for our sins, he rose from the dead, and when we embrace him, we now have an assurance of relationship with God no matter where we are, even if we have to leave home, even if we're in a rough place. 
uh, even if we uh, are traveling on a road that we're not sure about. And I don't know about you, but I think every human being kind of falls into that, uh, into that category. We are uh, in exile uh, here. We are still in exile in our lives. We come to know that what I mean by that is we come to know the Lord, but we're not yet at our destination, you see? And so this life, frankly, is one when we say, what does God do in your life? What, is, what does he really promise to do in everybody's life? Because after all, people pray for lots of things and they don't get everything they want, obviously, right? Even important, big important things. But what God basically promises us is that he'll never leave us. When we embrace him, and it's really true in our heart, he'll never leave us. He may go with us into murky waters, and we may not really experience his presence, depending on where we are, but he never leaves us. But the wonderful thing is that when we stay on the right road, there is a sense of his presence, and, 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 and we can navigate the, the choppy waters of life. By making the right choices and right decisions. We can't control what other people do or what other things going on in the world. But we do know he'll never leave us and he'll never forsake us. And he will get us there. That is why we read in the New Covenant about how the Ruach, the Holy Spirit, is like a down payment of our inheritance. You read that in Ephesians chapter 1. That's what that means. That uh, we belong, we belong to him. Jacob belonged to him. Jacob had a struggle through life, and so do we. Nobody goes without the struggle. But what is really marvelous is, is that there is an assurance, okay? Uh, there is an, an assurance. Now, there's something else that's interesting, is that in Jacob's life, tell me if I'm wrong, but we... We see some uh, miraculous things happen, but we don't see like the parting of the Red Sea. Most of how God works in Jacob's life is providential. In other words, like behind the scenes where, where you can't see. But what God does in Jacob's life is he delivers him. He saves the day. And that is often what we see how God works often in our lives. You know, he delivers us. He delivers us. Uh, we are in an exile, a spiritual exile, but he protects us even with all the hardships, okay? And the day is going to come. The day is going to come when the Son of Man will come in the clouds and we'll all recognize him when Yeshua will appear again, you see? Uh, and that is indeed our future. But at this point in the text with, uh, with Jacob, we don't know yet what the future is going to hold, but what we do know is that God promises to be with him as he goes. This is the beginning of the journey. God says, it's very interesting, at the very same place, before Jacob leaves the land, God, uh, uh, has, he has an experience with God. And then when he returns, right, he has an experience with God, right? Uh, and so God is saying uh, to Jacob, I will be with you. And we're still going to read, uh, uh, you know, the struggles, the struggles of, of, of Jacob uh, and uh, how important it is for us to recognize uh, that, yes, there are struggles, but there are blessings. There are victories. And when we're with the Lord, the struggles uh, don't seem as debilitating, that we can rise above our circumstances and we can still have a fruitful and satisfying life uh, of joy in the Lord, 
you know, uh, in the midst of living, uh, living this life. Uh, and that is what we see here. And so isn't it marvelous that Yeshua uses this text uh, to say, like, I'm the ramp, you know, I'm the ramp. You embrace me. There is you are related to God. Uh, and nothing can remember. There's a great passage in the book of Romans that nothing can separate you from the love of God. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. So when we embrace Yeshua and we live a life of obedience, uh, we're, uh, you know, he is, what does he say later on? I am the way. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. So in Yeshua is the way, the truth. In him is indeed the life. And so let's pray. Lord, we thank you, God, that providentially, Lord, you were involved with uh, Isaac and Rebekah and Jacob and Esau. Lord, and uh, thank you, uh, Lord, that uh, Jacob is obedient and is willing to go on this journey to find a wife, unlike his brother Esau, who settles for Canaanites and Ishmaelites. Lord, God, thank you, God, that uh, you uh, blessed Jacob because you uh, knew his heart. Lord, and thank you, God, that you blessed him with the birthright and you blessed him with the covenant, Lord. And part of that covenant promise is I will never leave you or forsake you. And thank you, uh, uh, Lord, that even now that still is so true, that in Messiah Yeshua, uh, we read, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And in the book of Hebrews, we read this quote again, I will never leave you or forsake you. Thank you, Lord, for that great promise. Because, Lord, we get ourselves sometimes into all kinds of trouble and all kinds of issues. But, Lord, thank you for your deliverance. When we, when we trust in you, there's always the way back. There's always the way back to the right road. Thank you, Lord God. Thank you, God. And thank you for the promise of the, that living hope that we, that we experience today and know for sure tomorrow, Lord. And... Uh, we thank you when we pray in Messiah's name.